0: I'm Al Kemia and welcome to episode twelve of Subject to Power. One could say that the origins of the Battle of the Sexes really is about who controls reproduction. And since women alone has the capacity to create life, the battle we're talking about is men trying to wrestle control of that unique power. For a long time, this control has been achieved via social, political, and economical means. But in the last century, reproduction has been overtaken by science and technology, most of which has been spearheaded and controlled by men. My guest today, biologist and sociologist Dr. Renata Klein, has researched and critiqued the development of what she calls the patriarchal sciences of reproductive technology for over 40 years. In particular, contraception, assisted reproduction, the surrogacy industry, and the endless efforts to create an artificial womb. Beyond the science, we talk about the major moral questions that arise from these advancements. And especially how women in different parts of the world are impacted. How long have you lived in Australia? Your accent is like half German <laughs> or Austrian or. From Switzerland. Switzerland, Switzerland. Yeah, I see. Swiss. Okay. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's embarrassing, but I've lived. <sighs> It is embarrassing. I've lived in English-speaking countries since 1978. uh, 77, actually. (laughs) And in Australia, I've lived here since 1986. Sometimes I don't know where my idioms come from. I mix them, you know, with my accent. I mean, I wish it was different, but it's just not.
0: (laughs) I understand everything you're saying, so. (laughs) Yes, yes. yes. Um, So you've obviously been an activist and writer and thinker in the space for a long time, in the trenches, so to speak, analyzing the development of reproductive technologies for many, many years. And so I would love for you to take us through a little bit of that history and your part in it.
1: Well, it was very interesting how I came to be involved in the whole issues of reproductive technologies. Uh, it was in 1982, I was doing my PhD at London University in the UK, So, and not on reproductive technology, it was on the theory and practice of women's studies, and I was at the party, and this unknown woman, I've never found out who she was actually, said, said to me, what do you think about test your babies? And I said not much, hadn't really thought about it. And she said, this woman said to me, well, you are a biologist, you should do a book on that. And I thought I should finish my PhD. That's what I should do. But, you know, sometimes these ideas, they drop somewhere and they take hold. And I had two very good friends, both U.S. scientists, and they were very excited said, yes, 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 let's do that. It's really important to point out that when we started our book, which was to to become Test You Women, What Future for Motherhood, and was really the first international critique of reproductive technologies. When we started the book, none of us had any kind of position. We didn't know if this was good for women, bad for women, a bit of both Even now, it's still a fantastic book. It has articles on surrogacy, on egg donation, on the whole industry, the question of eugenics, disability. I mean, almost all the main issues that we're discussing today, and that it is a big industry. That was already clear at the very beginning. The book sold quite well and was immediately translated into German. So in 1985, Germany had a very, very big conference More than 2,000 women came and I went over there and the book had been translated into Retorten Mütter, you know, Mothers from the Petri dish. (laughs) And it was really amazing because the resistance at that time was from everybody. It was like feminists, obviously, but it was union members. It was many, many religious people, whether they're Catholics or Protestants, And the ordinary men and women on on the street, they all were against it. And I think while it was clear and important that the biggest uh, resistance at the beginning came from Germany, because, I mean, they knew what had happened under Nazi Germany, under Hitler, and how the whole distinction of what is worthy life and unworthy life was paramount to them. And now here we had a technology which... Was, it was clear from the beginning what the first IVF doctor said, that this was eugenics. I mean, we had Patrick Steptoe, who was one of the lab fathers saying, well, children are better from the glass. They all repeated how, how good was that, that they could make perfect children, that these imperfect women could still have perfect children. And so it's really understandable that it was Germany who led the resistance
0: for quite a few years. So, yeah, that was the beginning of it all. I remember it myself. I was very young then, but there was like kind of like a general recoil from the idea of growing children in a lab.
1: Yes. Absolutely. And then the next good thing that happened was that Jenna Correa, who's an American journalist, wrote a fabulous book, um, The Mother Machine. She also was in Germany at that conference. And what happened next was that we then presented a paper at the feminist conference in in Holland. And there was an overwhelming interest in the topic. And then there was this clear wish that we should have an organization. So we actually quickly founded something that we called FINRAGE, Feminist International Resistance to Reproductive and Genetic Engineering. And FinRage was a really, really important organisation. Our glory days lasted until the mid-90s, I would say. We had thousands of members. And what was important about it, that we pointed to both sides of the coin. On the one hand, we had, for rich women in rich countries, we had technologies such as IVF, where they could have their baby. But then in countries like India and Bangladesh, It was the contraceptive technologies and the forced abortions that kept the population in check. And we always pointed out these two sides to the coin, that basically in both sides, it was men in charge, and it clearly was men at the time, and now there are some women involved, but it's still men as a social group, as in patriarchy, who want to keep women in check. So-called good women, the white women with the blue eyes and the blonde hair, they should have babies. But the brown women and the black women who we have too much of anyway, they shouldn't have so many babies. And it was about control. They were in control and women weren't. And really, that has not changed at all. So that was very important that Finrage was an organization that looked at both sides and that we really had big representation of women from the South. We really had absolutely a fabulous team and we did many, many conferences and papers and books and it was an exciting time. We really had a big outreach. And there were so many women working on this topic from different countries. I just reflected on that yesterday and I was thinking it is such a pity that today I know very, very few young women who study at universities who are even allowed to select a topic like that. It's just
0: not cool anymore. So while all of these efforts were going on, It wasn't enough to like kind of stem the tide. The tsunami that became the reproductive technology still just kind of rolled on. And so I want to just touch on some key cases that kind of put this whole issue into the consciousness
1: now, before I get into this, I just want to say one other thing about why I think we were so very successful, actually, at the beginning of the 80s. And we're not successful anymore, really, in convincing people that these reproductive technologies and genetic engineering are a bad thing. Is that at that point, at least, women still had a feeling that we were actually our bodies, that we were connected, that, you know, we were OK, basically, the way we are. Whereas nowadays, it's all about dissociation. And like Robin Morgan wrote in that wonderful book, The Demon Lover, I think it came out originally in 1989. She wrote that the biggest component of patriarchy was disconnection and compartmentalization. And that is so true. It is so true. And it has really progressed to an incredible moment in time where, like, if you think about the transgender discourse, it is possible for some to say that people can change sex. I mean, something that a primary school pupil learns is simply not possible. In all ourselves, we have either XX or XY. And yet today, intelligent people look you in the eye and say, oh, no, it's okay. You can change sex. You cannot change sex. And so I think it it comes from this dissociation. So therefore, using a woman in surrogacy as an incubator or, as she's called, a suitcase or where you put an embryo in and then bingo, you have a baby. Well, what's, what's wrong with that? It's kind of just normal.
0: It fits into our whole world view, the way it has evolved.
1: And we don't think who actually controls the technology. And in the case of whether it's transgender industry or surrogacy industry, there are huge, huge, huge industries who make an awful lot of money for all the different middlemen. And so that's why it continues. But let me go back to those cases that you mentioned Yes, in 1987, there was the baby M case in the US. At that point, that was a so called traditional surrogacy. So, Mary Bess Whitehead was the woman's name. She was inseminated with sperm from a very wealthy man. Uh, his name was Stern, and his wife was actually a pediatrician. I was never quite clear if she was infertile or if she simply didn't want to have children. Anyway, the baby was born and Mary Beth decided that she wanted to keep it. And it was very dramatic. So she fled with that child to Florida where the police came and ripped this child away from her in the prisons of her own children. And then there was a lengthy court case. And the outcome was that the Stearns, they were given custody of the child. And it was like then and it is now the rich people, the sterns were rich people, educated rich people. They won against the poor, uneducated woman that was Marybeth Whitehead, and her husband was a garbage collector. So you can sort of see the difference. So the baby went there. They, I don't think they had contacts, and then sadly at the 18th birthday of this child, she then actually severed all connections with Marybeth Whitehead and became a stern. But that was to be expected because, you know, they gave her the best college education, et cetera, et cetera. But very clear inequality, surrogate mother is of low income, low education, uh, so-called commissioning mother and father. They are educated, wealthy people. The same happened in Australia a year later, 1988, where the Kirkman sisters, Maggie and Linda Kirkman, They did a so-called sister surrogacy. So the eggs from Maggie and actually an anonymous sperm donor, because her husband turned out to be infertile too, they were inserted into the womb of her younger sister, Linda. Maggie wrote a book about this, and it's called My Sister's Child. And it's actually worth reading because it is such an example of, again, rich people. Again, you know, Maggie and her husband, very wealthy, very educated. Linda lived in in the bush (laughs) and she had two children of her own. Her husband was a laborer when they came out in public later when it was actually known that they had done that. Linda always had little ribbons in her hair and little hair sticking out. And Maggie was very glamorous with designer clothes. But it became a very famous case for many reasons. It was actually, I think in the whole world, the first case where an embryo was transplanted into Linda's womb. And that was obviously, you know, another progress in the whole reproductive technology saga. But interesting enough, after that case, surrogacy in the state of Victoria in Australia was outlawed. So that was 1988. And that time in Australia, as much as in Europe, people did not think this was right. I mean, it really came down to that. I don't think that the Kirkmans did themselves a lot of favours by presenting, you know, Maggie as the the beautiful, well-educated woman and Linda as the little sister. People could see what was happening, the power difference.
0: It's interesting to me to know that back when the Kirkman sisters happened, the public sentiment was just sort of against it morally or whatever.
1: Yes, definitely. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And then it just slowly turned to complete acceptance, really.
1: But we also had a very strong feminist resistance. We did have a presence, you know, in the media, like when something happened, like, you know, the first frozen embryo or whatever it was. We were asked about our opinion and, of course, we gave it. And the technodox, as we call them, they they, of course, hated us and they... They did all sorts of things to make us uh, invisible, and <laughs> but we we had a platform. Nowadays, it's quite hard to find a platform for our views because we still call crazy. Nothing changed about that, but it's not the same resistance that is in in the general population. As I said before, you know, I think many many people have just become complacent,
0: and when they see a little baby, oh, it's a little baby, or oh, everything's good. But I also think it's like progression bias a little bit. It's like you just feel that it's an inevitable reality now, that it has progressed to this and we can't put the genie back in the bottle.
1: Well, I can't think that because if I if I were to think that, I would just stop this moment. I would go and have a swim, and then have a gin and tonic, <laughs> and I would just read novels and not not do anything anymore because basically it's not pleasant to do this work. So now we have to keep the hope, and I do have hope because actually um, there's been a quite a lot of feminist resurgence against in particular in the last seven, eight years. So we have quite a lot of feminist organizations and we work well together and we just do our best to still keep this whole thing open, the discourse open that no, it's not right. We must not just see the babies and think it's lovely. It's really an exploitation of a woman's body and basically it is the sale of children. Because once you uh, rip a child out of its mother's body and give it away, especially when it's paid for, as in commercial surrogacy, that is really trafficking in children. Nobody, whether they're white or brown or heterosexual or gay, or transgender or whatever, no one has a right to a child. But that all gets forgotten. And unfortunately, the gay community has done us a lot of disservice by just jumping on this bandwagon and saying, whoa, we can't have children naturally. Well, yes, hello, men have never had children, actually. So now it is our right that we exploit, they don't say it like that, of course, that we exploit this woman and there's nothing. And, you know, I'm a lesbian. I can't be accused of homophobia. Some people have tried, but it doesn't go very far to say, I'm sorry, I'm a lesbian. And I point out, no, there is no right to child that you're gay or homosexual. There are some rare men like Gary Powell in uh, in England, who is a gay man. And he's for some years now powerfully written against why surrogacy is Not a good thing. And why gay men, really, very few lesbians do it anyway, because, you know, mostly one of the two women is is actually fertile. But why gay men really should stand up and, and join us. Yeah. It's too hard. It's in the too hard basket because it's become so, we want, it's our right, you know. And really, they say it with an absolutely straight face. It's the only way for us to have children. Yes. Sorry. Men, you can't have children. You know, there's so, so many ways for people to have children in their life. Again, we're getting back to these genes. It has to be our genes. It has to be one of the man's genes. In Australia, the person who has for years advertised surrogacy, he's got a so-called not-for-profit and he makes a very nice little profit. They do courses. It's called Growing Families and they do courses. They have seminars. They invite infertile couples and get a lot of gay men. To their seminars and they make money. He goes all over the world. He's a gay man. And he told us how he got his babies. And so he and his partners they went to India when he was still allowed. Unfortunately, the first surrogate uh, mother miscarried. So then they said, Oh, we better have two. So they then have two surrogate mothers when the exploitation is just, you know. But anyway, in the end, the two little girls and the journalist who asked them about this said, oh, such an ordeal for you, wasn't it? Think about the women who had to, to endure the ordeal. It's just normal. It has all been normalized. That's the thing. It's really become That's right. very, very normal. That's right. And we have to constantly say, no, nah, it's not normal. It's very, very abnormal, actually.
0: That's right. And like it's ceased to be a moral discussion. It is all about physical possibilities, not should we? Is it a good thing?
1: Well, yes. And from the point of view of the scientists, you know, as an ex-scientist, I can understand that because it's kind of like, where can I go next? How far can I go? If I do this, is it going to work? Oh, another group is doing that. Oh, that didn't work. Oh, well, let's try something different. This is the naive interpretation, right? You know, we just, we go as far as we can go. But of course, the not so naive feminist explanation is, yeah, yeah, and meanwhile, we're just in charge and we decide where human beings are being born and which women are allowed to have babies and which are not. So nothing has changed on that. I mean, as we speak, Women in Africa, they are contracepted out of their minds because they should not have a lot of children because we don't want any black children. We want good, quote, good, you know, white children.
0: Right. The underlying racism of the industry is stark, stark, stark. I wanted to talk about the resurgence of surrogacy in the early 2000s in India, like when, you know, the whole movement to outsource for the global north or the west to outsource surrogacy to poor countries. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was really in the early 2000s when I got more heavily involved in the whole surrogacy debate. I mean, I was Still working on on IVF etc. because there's still endless questions there that have never been answered. For instance, at the moment it said that we have eight million babies that were born from from IVF. The problem is that IVF is still only twenty percent successful. You wouldn't know that if you look at the success rates that individual clinics advertise. So if you think eight million babies are born, but really that means so times five, that's 40 million women have gone through IVF. And of those, 32 million have not had a child. But they had all the drugs in their bodies. And it's one of the most scandalous things that there is no long-term research into the health of these women who have gone through IVF. Now, I find that absolutely scandalous. There are a few smaller studies and, you know, regularly we hear, yes, there's more ovarian cancer, there's more breast cancer, but there is no long-term studies. But going to the early 2000s, yes, all of a sudden, India was very much in the spotlight and we saw all these Western people, including also couples from Australia, going to India and getting their baby. Then it became clear and clearer that this was gross exploitation. And there were some wonderful women and one of them is Sheila, Saravan who wrote books on, on this topic and then made it clear to the whole world that actually in India, these the women who did the surrogacy, they were kept in special Well, I don't even know what word to use, it really. Hostels? Yeah, in hostels, but it really seemed more like prison. They weren't allowed to go home to be with their families. Often their families did not even know they were doing surrogacy because it was shameful to do surrogacy. But the husband, of course, did know. And then there were all these examples of the husband then getting the money. And, you know, like the couples from America, for instance, they pay maybe a hundred thousand for the surrogacy, but the surrogate herself or her husband got something like maybe ten thousand. And then they use this money to often they bought a house. But the women, when the women talked about it, they always almost without exception always said, I'm using it for the education of my children. So again, some people say, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that good? that finally these women, these Indian women, have got an income uh, and don't have to go, you know, and, and and wash floors, et cetera, et cetera, or don't have to become prostitutes. And, of course, what we're saying, well, surrogacy is nothing but reproductive prostitution because very similar power struggles uh, operate in both these horrible, horrible
0: industries. I think they are on the receiving end of so many oppressive systems and so many oppressive life circumstances that you couldn't possibly make any judgments about what is considered work or not work, because they're under economic pressure, they're under patriarchal pressure, they are feeding their families, and yeah. Absolutely.
1: And and I think that really needs to be considered. And also, we know of many cases, not just a few where then the husbands think, oh, this is a good thing and I can use this money. And, you know, sometimes they gamble, sometimes they go and see prostitutes, so they use it and they say to their wife, okay, you go and do it again. So it's the exploitation through the industry and it's the exploitation through often their own family. So, and again, going back to the question, oh, it's choice. If we didn't live in a patriarchy, we can actually think of a system where women really would have more choices than either being in the so-called serving professions, which is backbreaking work, underpaid, often really demeaning work as well. Surely we could come up with a different structure of society where that would not happen. But patriarchy, it, it likes it when they have the whole class of women who does all the The work, basically, they don't want to do. And again, nothing has changed. So gradually, the Indian government took note of all of that. And now, on paper, surrogacy in India is actually prohibited for all foreigners. But knowing India and what our Indian friends Tell us, the researchers tell us it's still happening. It's still happening sort of like underground. But it's not the official big, big industry that it was in the in the 2000s, which is a very good thing. And other countries like in Thailand, in Nepal, in Cambodia, they have also stopped surrogacy because it became clear to even these governments that it was just an exploitation of their poor women. In Australia, we also had the case of baby Gammy in 2014 baby gammy was one of two children born in thailand and the surrogate mother she had twins in thailand and the commissioning parents came from western australia and only took the little girl home with them who was able-bodied but little gammy had actually down syndrome they didn't want him and baby gammy stayed with the mother it then it became quite a, a famous case and many, many people in Australia donated money so that little Gammy had a good life and could go to school. It then turned out that the commissioning father was actually a sex offender and happy to jail for sexual assault of children. So that caused a lot of stir because it became clear there's absolutely no screening of who can go and buy themselves a baby. In Australia now, in the state of Victoria, um, the laws have become stricter. You have to apply, you have to do various interviews, you have to go to a psychologist, and your criminal record is also being investigated. So in theory, this shouldn't happen anymore. It probably will somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I'm just thinking how pervasive child sexual abuse is. We know this for a fact, just by, you know, children growing up and revealing their stories in adulthood. I just think it's astonishing that there's no regulation against single men, in particular single men. It really kind of brings up the question to how would you screen for pedophilia? It's just a very problematic aspect to the whole thing.
1: It is. And uh, I mean, the only thing, you know, it's like you can go to the sex offender register and you can see if somebody's listed there. And if that had happened, then at least this man from Western Australia, he would not have been able to go to Thailand. But Thailand didn't screen for anything. And in fact, there are rumors around that Thailand wants to open the surrogacy business again, which would really be a big problem we'd have to do lot about that. But, you know, they miss the income. They miss the income from all the people coming from other countries because it's cheaper than to go to the U.S., and that's then why there was this lucrative business in, in Ukraine, which is such a poor country, even, of course, before this phase of the war began, because they were at war with Russia since 2014. It was either prostitution or sarcasm for a lot of really poor Ukrainian women. And then when, of course, the new war with Russia started last year, it was disgusting in the Australian media. It was all about, oh, my God, what's happening to my baby? I have to go to Ukraine, despite the government saying, don't go there, it's dangerous. No, 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 I have to go and rescue my baby. You know, nobody actually said, well, what's happening to the women? And especially the women who were still pregnant. And then there were all these daring attempts of Australians and other nationalities, too, to rush to Ukraine and then grab their baby and get out. And what happened to the surrogate mother? I don't know. But, I mean, Ukraine has actually very, very bad laws in both prostitution and prostitution is, in theory, illegal in Ukraine. And yet, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of women who are prostituted every day. And now with all the soldiers, it's actually gotten worse. And surrogacy, um, at the moment, I'm not hearing a great deal. I know it has started again in Ukraine, in spite of the shelling and the danger and the cold, it has started again. But People are a bit quiet. But I just heard yesterday that Colombia apparently is now the new go-to country. Also cheap, poor and willing women, so to speak, who give their body.
0: I just so struggle with the moral questions that come up. So you have countries that are in conflict or there's civil unrest or there's other sort of big political turmoil And then you have Western couples who essentially capitalize on the crises that this makes for women in those countries. And they sort of descend on whatever poor country is going through this and take advantage of the women there. It's so disturbing to me.
1: It's very disturbing. I agree. And it is a moral issue. You know, sometimes people say, oh, don't call it a moral issue. But I'm I'm very sorry. But it is a moral issue. And we should not be afraid to say that. I mean, by what rules do we actually live our lives? If you want to be decent citizens, we have to have morals. We have to have something that guides us. And clearly, as you just said, you know, going to a poor country, and then crying, oh, it's the woman's choice. She doesn't have to do it, which, I mean, you know, the whole concept of choice is something that I, I just loathe. I really loathe it. For me, choice is deciding, hmm, will I have a chocolate cake or will I have a banana cake? Both are really good options. It is not between deciding, should I scrub floors and burn nothing Or should I be a prostitute and earn, you know, not very much and my body is invaded with 10 penises a day or more? Or I can become this wonderful surrogate. This is not a choice. And yet, if you talk to anybody who hasn't seemed not have thought about this, they often say that. But it's a choice. The women wouldn't have to do it if they didn't want to do it. Ha, ha. I mean, mostly in commercial surrogacy, we know from some studies in the US that women really do it for the money. It's not much money, but it is money, and they do it for that. And then, of course, we have the other kind of surrogacy, which is the altruistic surrogacy, which personally, I think, can sometimes even be worse than the surrogacy for money. I mean, surrogacy for love is diabolical.
0: I'd love for you to talk more about that, why it is so potentially damaging.
1: In Broken Bonds, we have two stories by Australian women who were so-called altruistic surrogates. And one is particularly really just upsetting and sad. It's a story of a big Chinese family. And the woman called Odette, it's not her real name, um, she had a cousin. She loved that cousin. The cousin was about three years older than her. And the cousin had gotten infertile because of chemotherapy for breast cancer. So the cousin came to Odette and said, oh, I can't have children. And Odette, who's a very kind woman, said, ah, no problems. I'll have a child for you. And she had already got a little boy who was about two at the time. And she thought, oh, that's wonderful. So that these two little boys, you know, they can play together and we have one wonderful extended family and everybody is happy. Well, the pregnancy was a disaster because this now infertile woman couldn't stand the idea that her fertile cousin could carry a baby, could make a baby in her body. And did the most disgusting things like she didn't come to her doctor's appointments. She kept saying, oh, You'll have a miscarriage anyway, which is not nice to hear every day. And then when the baby was finally born, it was whisked away. The birth mother did then actually try to change her mind and keep her baby, but she didn't have the money to do that because, again, again, the other people were much richer. She was an ordinary woman who didn't have a lot of money and who just wanted to be a nice and kind woman. So... The commissioning parents took the baby, then the whole story then went to the family court of Australia because Odette finally decided she did want that child back. But of course, the judge said, no, you know, you said you will give it away. And and also, of course, it's not your genes, right? That's always the argument. It's the commissioning parents, it's their genes. And so the judge said it's not your child. Sorry, it stays with the commissioning people. The cruelty in that case was that it split the whole family and half the family took the part of Odette and the other half took the part of the cousin. And to this day, they don't really talk to each other. It's just not settled. And it's about five years ago now. Odette never even got to see a picture of her son. She begged for pictures.
0: Yeah, it just makes me think about we think families are exempt from coercion, cruelty, abandoning each other, all of these things that human beings notoriously do to each other in families or out. So it's very strange that altruistic surrogacy is somehow exempted from the other conversation. You can be exploited by a family just as easy as you can be exploited by a stranger, my God.
1: Well, absolutely. And then there's also this um, point, which uh, I have called the compassion trap. And I think that really, really applies, especially to altruistic surrogacy. Women from our very early age, little girls are socialized that when we are nice and kind and smiley and do everything right, then that's good. Then we are a proper nice little girl, then we get rewarded. And unfortunately, I think a lot of women never shed this idea that they're only important human beings in their own right if they do something for somebody else. Now, of course, it's nice to be kind. And you probably heard, I mean, in Australia, it's everywhere like you need to be kind. Kindness is the best thing you can do. Yeah. I mean, I'm a kind person. I think I am. But At some point, you have to think, well, if I'm kind, what does it do to me? And in the case of surrogacy, not only is the pregnancy more dangerous when a foreign embryo is inserted into a woman, but the whole traumatic break when the child is taken away from you and is given to somebody else, I mean, that induces trauma, which, I mean, really is PTSD and worse. And it hurts like hell. But women do it. But well, think of all those surrogate mothers who actually died during the pregnancy or after birth, because there are quite a few who have died. Or right. ectones who have come down with severe Breast cancer. We have a story in Broken Bones by a woman called Maggie, who had terminal breast cancer. After I mean, she she did six or seven egg donations, and she too was told by the nurse at the clinic all the time, "Oh, you're such a good woman. What you're doing is just so important because you enable these poor, poor, poor infertile couples who can't have children. You enable them to have a child, and it makes them proud." And I think we really have to talk about this phenomenon of the compassion trap. And we really need to, well, educate women to just stop
0: doing this. We need new values for women. We do. We do. I really think so. I mean, to create like this kind of powerful reward system for women is just so, so unfair. I wanted to circle back a little bit to, we talk about that there are three women that's needed for surrogacy. Three women's bodies need to be used in order for this to work. So it's the egg donor, it's the commissioning mother, and the so-called surrogate mother. And we don't talk much about the commissioning mother. I think we just kind of assume that she has a need that should be filled or that she's part of a couple who yearns for a child, and that's why. But can you talk a little bit about, I think she's a complex character in this triangle.
1: Yes, thank you for bringing that up, because really nobody talks about that at all. And it's very difficult to even find women who are prepared to talk about it themselves. If you picture yourself in this situation, so let's say you're a heterosexual couple, It's mostly the man who really, really, really wants his child with his genes, you know, nothing's ever changed. And so finally, there is this pregnancy. Now, the woman is supposed to be all smiley and happy because after all, she is part of team baby. You know, we want this baby. But I'm sure some of them have similar feelings that Odette's cousin had, like, bloody hell, you know, why can't I have this baby, but this other woman can have it, so jealousy and whatever. But then, so this baby gets born and gets put into her arms. And she's now supposed to be absolutely super happy and the perfect mother to this child that has, in fact, probably nothing to do with her. And she cannot say, oh. It cries all the time and it doesn't want to feed. Of course, she has no breast milk, so it has to be bottle baby. And we all know that little babies, yeah, they're lovely, but they often cry for hours and that's just probably not so nice. But she cannot afford to say, oh, actually, I actually really hate that child. I don't want it. Because she was commissioning it. She paid for it in the case of commercial surrogacy. Her husband is over the moon, so she has to be over the moon too. This is another angle of the compassion trap because she too has to pretend to be super happy with something that actually maybe quite violates her own self. Maybe she actually didn't want to have a life with children in it. Maybe she would have been quite happy not to have children, but that's not it's
0: not a possibility anymore. That's right. And I'm I'm also thinking about being pregnant for 9 months like all of the changes that your body goes through prepares you for the consuming, you know, your body is primed to just relinquish itself to this other being. And a woman who hasn't been pregnant hasn't had that preparation psychologically, physiologically, or anything else. Like, what an absolutely strange situation.
1: Yes, that's true. Now, there are stories of uh, women who actually don't want their neighbors or even the family know that it's not her who is pregnant. So they put pillows under their clothes and pretend they are pregnant and have even baby showers and stuff like that. I mean, that's the other side, which is, of course, also really, really creepy, actually. It's a bit creepy, really. And that, of course, totally invisibilizes the... The incredible amount of effort that it takes when a woman gestates a baby, you know, from a little, tiny little embryo to then a fetus and then a baby in nine months. I mean, that is just fantastic. And no wonder that men are jealous that they can't do it. I mean, you know, you can't say this anymore because people say, oh, you're such an essentialist. Ah. But it's actually a fact of life. Men can't have babies. Women can have babies. And that is something that men have always been jealous about and will always be jealous about. And part of this whole reproductive technology is nothing but getting the power to make life
0: and getting power away from women. I think part of why it has been so normalized is how we conceptualize the idea of surrogacy, how it lives in people's minds, and the idea that you talk about a lot is that we've gotten to the point where genes, the genetic makeup of the baby, trumps everything else, which fits the mechanism, is that only if we can consider rightful parentage to be genetic, Can this work but if we consider carrying the baby and creating that life as parentage as motherhood the whole thing falls apart if you want to talk about that the kind of genetic supremacy issue
1: (laughs) i was just gonna use the word supremacy you're just taking that out of my mouth absolutely it's the 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 supremacy of the gene. And, you know, in some way, uh, it's not too dissimilar from the old Greeks who had this idea that actually the homunculus was this already formed baby and that was in a male sperm. So the man, you know, had the genes and it's his baby. The woman is really, was then a vessel and is today still a vessel. But it's all a function of the gene is the important bit. All the rest around, it doesn't matter. Not that flesh that the woman has. It doesn't matter. The blood doesn't matter. The sweat doesn't matter. In my book, I describe some interesting research that a South African researcher called Amrita Pande has done in India. And she talked to women who were so-called surrogate mothers. And in one case, there was exactly three embryos growing and... The doctors were the ones who said, no, nah, your womb isn't big enough. We have to, we have to terminate one. And it's a very moving description how the surrogate mother says, no, no, no. I talked to Madam, they all called them, you know, Madam, the woman who commissioned it. And we agreed between us that we would have all three. She can take the boy and the girl, and I take the other boy because after all it is my blood and is my sweat that has actually made the baby so it is mine yeah these indian women see what's happening in their bodies they actually don't think it's the other person's child they don't think of genes they think of blood and sweat which of course it is but again you know they're in the compassion trap well, I'm doing it because, you know, the madam from Canada can't have children. I can have children, but she can't. So I'm being really nice and kind and giving it to her. And I get a bit of money as well. Yeah, I just want to say it's just wrong. <laughs> I know that's not an argument, but it is just wrong. And how we arrived at this point in time where most people just struck shoulders and said, are you getting so worked up about this? It's just why it is. Some people have money. Well, if they want to buy a child for that money, I will let them. Who are you to actually carry that? Well, there's other things than money. There's human values, dignity. That old-fashioned word, dignity, that we should all have. I say to people. We could stop surrogacy today, everywhere in the world. We could stop it. They said, no, you can't, you can't. Look at the children. I said, no, you maybe have 200 children, maybe 300 maximum. And yes, you have to provide for them that they are citizens of a particular state somewhere. Yes, you have to do that. Afterwards, it's finished. There are no growing babies, you know, because you've dealt with them, because the embryos are only made. After the transaction, whether it's for love or for money, has actually been finalized. And I cannot understand why people still think, oh, no, 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 you have to look after the babies. Well, there are no babies, actually. You make them. And we can stop that. We couldn't stop that today. Yeah. Yeah. But there's no will. And in fact, some of the latest developments, which really, really, really make me very, a great deal, they are very well connected groups of individuals who all go under the banner of we do it for the children's sake. They want to have parentage orders that even in countries that do not allow surrogacy, and in fact, most of the countries in Europe prohibit surrogacy of all forms, like There's France, there's Germany, there's Switzerland, there's Sweden. But they're all saying, well, no, 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 no. The children that are born, for instance, in America to a couple from Germany, they have to be able to go back to Germany and be German citizens. A couple can come to a border and say, excuse me, but we're using, for instance, the Hague Convention order, That hasn't passed yet, but they want to. And uh, here's our child born of surrogacy in America. And this now needs to go into Germany. And that's so, so, so dangerous. In Queensland, they have laws where it is not permitted to go overseas for an international surrogacy. And the laws say that if you do that, you commit a crime. And the penalty is either a year in jail or $100,000. Do you think a single person has been prosecuted? No. And in order to get a passport for the child, all they need to go to an Australian consulate and the father, again, genes, the father has to prove with the DNA test that he is actually the genetic father. And bingo, that's enough. No question about who the mother is. We don't need to know that, do we? doesn't matter. As long as we know that the father has his precious genes in this child, it can get an Australian passport. All these are good examples to show how patriarchy is alive and well. If anybody has ever doubted or any liberal feminist to say, oh, we, women are so equal now.
0: Really? Really? <laughs> really, really? <laughs> really, really. I did want to get into the, you know, so you have the two camps, abolition versus regulation. Can you speak to that? There are those who think we just have to clean it up and make sure it runs ethically.
1: That's right. There is are actually terms like ethical surrogacy and good surrogacy. And it's the liberals, whether they're feminists or otherwise, it's those people who think that, yes, it can be regulated, like prostitution can be regulated. You just make it safe. Uh-huh. The contracts have to be fair. They say, for instance, that the surrogate mother has to have their own lawyer because often at the moment it's the same lawyer for both And they're totally ignorant of the bigger forces that is the whole industrialization of surrogacy and of pregnancy in general. It's just all very naive. No understanding that the surrogacy industry actually doesn't, even they don't want to be regulated. They want to continue to do as much and as crazy things as possible and to make as much money as possible. It has to be abolished. It is like slavery, and we have abolished slavery. Yes, there are still cases of slavery here, and there will still be some cases of surrogacy. But it would be hard to argue for somebody today, I think, to say, no, I think slavery is good. I support slavery. They would say, oh, no, 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 slavery is bad. And I want to get to the point where people say surrogacy is bad. Even if there's still some individual cases still happening on the ground, we have to change people's opinions. Well, women have to be validated. and That's the whole point. Women are not validated. We are just sort of like things that are in the way. And so what happened just last week, so some clever guy thinks that, now why don't we use these brain dead women as incubators, as surrogates? for children so you know nine months you grow in a in a brain dead body but that's still kept alive and then you get taken out and given to your commissioning parents then they actually use the brain dead woman for her organs so isn't that wonderful you get the best out of a living corpse and it sort of made the rounds internationally and people got really upset and i had to tell them well <laughs> the same Idea came up in 1988. It didn't happen then. But I think today, I mean, it's not going to happen. I don't think you'll find an ethics committee that would agree to that, not even today. But more people would say, yeah, you know, why not? What's wrong with it? I mean, this person can do good. She's dead, but she can still do good. It's the whole, again, instrumentalization of life. We are not something whole, we are fragments.
0: I read about it just today. I think it's out of Norway, actually. The grotesque of it is just beyond beyond words. It is
1: beyond. Yeah, yeah. But then you know, we have in 1984, we had the famous Peter Singer, who is still professor at Princeton, despite all his hmm, what's the word I wanna use? Reprehensible ideas that, you know, there's nothing wrong with our human beings having sex with animals still a professor in in Princeton, but in 1984 already, he wrote a book. And in that book, he suggested that women who have to have abortions would feel so much better if they could put their fetus into an artificial womb. So there's hardly anything new under the sun. They keep on working on the artificial womb and trying to make it more sophisticated and It just doesn't quite work because that pesky body of a woman that can grow a child just simply can't be replicated yet. But they're working on it. That's what they really want to achieve. That is the ultimate aim of all of reproductive technologies. It's actually the very clear and bitter truth.
0: The end goal. That's right. The end goal, yeah. Birth and the entire process of pregnancy has been so extremely medicalized anyway, that it's just sort of on this continuum of taking the whole creation of life out of the domain of women, period.
1: Yeah, that's actually done on purpose. But of course, we're not being told. It's all being told. We do that for you, for the poor infertile women who can't have children. That's really what we who we do it for. Or for the poor gay boys who can't have children. We're doing it for you. And as we do it, we also like to get in, in the ultimate position of power and control where we can really make human beings the way we want them to be because it's still not really happening, you know. They manipulate and they do with embryos and with the women they select, but they still need living women. I mean, if it wasn't, it's laughable. It's laughable. And yet, since the 1950s, possibly before, they have been working on developing this artificial womb in one way or another. And they keep working on it. And I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. I don't think, actually, personally, I don't think it will ever be happening, but teams all over the world are, are working on it. I just read a new paper yesterday, and in fact, I learned a new abbreviation that I didn't know, AWT, in a paper on ectogenesis, which is you know the term for artificial womb or outside, out-of-the-body gestation. I thought, what is AWT? Well, it's artificial womb technology. Wow. There you are. That's the latest artificial womb technology. And meanwhile, in 2017, a group at Philadelphia Hospital created what they call a bio bag. Now, the bio bag is basically a plastic bag, and they put developing lamb fetuses into this bio bag and let them develop until supposedly they were ready to be burst. And they opened the bio bag, took them out. And they did it with hundreds and about two or three actually did live and about one or two lived for quite some months. Now, how they explained this, they didn't say, ha ah, ha, this is our attempt at an artificial womb." They said, we are being so kind and so nice because we want to create something where preterm babies still have the chance to develop And actually then, you know, have a life instead of not making it. They haven't, of course, done it with humans, but they will keep on doing it. And unfortunately, some liberals, and in this case, Australian liberal feminists, think it's a really good idea. So this woman called Evie Kendall uh, has written a book and she actually defends uh, an artificial womb and says that would make women equal. Because they wouldn't have the burden of having to produce children anymore because they could be done, you know, in an artificial womb. And so that would make her equal. I mean, the whole preposition is ludicrous anyway. I think patriarchy would survive even with a with an artificial womb
0: there. So that's not going to solve <laughs> it. I mean, I think this really goes to the, the notion that if we remove our sexed reality somehow women will be free <laughs> instead of valuing our sexed reality for what it can do and what, what it is.
1: And what it is. I mean, because I think that we are a sex class is incredibly important. And sex exists, will always exist, can't be changed. But, but let's just also say something positive. I mean, it's not just <laughs> I'm sitting here moaning and groaning about this and say how hopeless it is. No, I mean, there are, I think, quite powerful organisations of very determined women who we work our butts out, really, to bring about change. Like in 2015, Jennifer Lal, the wonderful woman from America, she started Stop Surrogacy Now!, which has more than ten thousand signatures. And then in France, the coalition for the abolition of surrogate motherhood, they came into life in about two thousand seventeen. In Austria, we have stopped uh, leihmutterschaft since also two thousand and eighteen. And in Australia, we have a small organization called APSA, Abolish Surrogacy Australia, and of course, Finrage is also still active in in Australia. So we trying, but then a country like Australia has already got laws that actually prohibit going overseas for surrogacy, and yet nobody gets in prison, nobody gets fined.
0: No one enforces it. But I mean, ultimately, I think it's as long as we are nation states in the world, it's down to those nation states to care about the women in their individual countries enough to protect them or not, not allow it in their own countries. But the outsourcing is a, is a whole other, the outsourcing from poor countries is, is an atrocious pipeline.
1: It is an atrocious pipeline, and, and we know it from the trafficking of women into prostitution. I mean, what happened from Ukraine into prostitution, especially into Germany, it's just it's just scandalous. Women were warned about it, you know, it still happens. And it really goes back to, if I were a man living today, I would really have to look myself in the mirror and say, what can I do? What do I have to do? You know, again, it's a question of morals. I have a responsibility actually being a man in today's world. I do think men should take. Much more responsibility for all these developments, whether it's in surrogacy or prostitution or pornography, and really try and put their important voice into the discussion. And some do, but we need many more men who actually really do something. I just hope we get to a time where women are valued and human life is valued and uh, we, we want Become transhuman in the process. We can actually keep whatever humanity we have. And there's a lot of improvements that can happen to this humanity. Not just we all these wars in the world, you know, would just stop because surrogacy is a war against women. Let's just not mince words. Prostitution and pornography, they are wars against women. And women are just not in a position of power, really. There needs to be a global shift, I think, in, in the value
0: that we, we append to people, especially female people. Thank you so very much for talking with me. And it was a great, great conversation. Thank you. Well,
1: thank you, Elle, for having these really important podcasts. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for your contribution to this distressing tiles.
0: Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson, and music by Beware of Darkness.